Some of you here this morning, I see you on the edge of your seat. You got your bulletin, a pen out, you're taking notes. You're eager to learn what the Word of God says. Other of you, you're folded back, laying there like you could go to sleep. But if this were a seminar on how to make a million dollars, if this were a seminar on how to get free scholarships to your kids to college, or how to prosper in your business, you'd have a pen out and you'd be writing down everything. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of 2 Timothy, and last time we looked at Paul's encouragement to Timothy to abandon all entanglements that can compromise the Christian life. Paul used two metaphors to describe the Christian walk, that of a soldier and that of an athlete. As we pick up at the end of verse 6 today in our message entitled, The Cost of Suffering in Christ, Paul uses another analogy to describe the Christian walk. He says, we are to be like the farmer. Let's rejoin Pastor Carl as he reads this verse and picks up on this theme. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to, re- to, sh- to receive his share of the crops. If the soldier must suffer, if the athlete must play fair, the farmer must work hard. It's indispensable to good farming. Even in our day of industrialization, it's only the hardworking farmer who receives his first share of the crop, and he ought to receive it because he is the one who earned it by working hard. Now understand this illustration is different from the other two. Unlike the soldier who had come in victorious behind the general and all the prisoners and spoils of war as they marched into Rome and the crowds would cheer in those great parades, unlike the athlete who would come into the Colosseum where the people would cheer him on, the farmer is out in that field all alone very often, sweating, toiling, with no applause, but the applause of heaven. And unless you learn to serve Jesus Christ like that, you'll never serve Him well. The hardworking farmer ought to receive the first share of his crops. And while this verse does not spell it out, the rest of the New Testament reminds us that the harvest that the farmer receives comes in two ways. First, there's a harvest of holiness. The hardworking farmer will have a harvest of holiness. Now, you and I know that growth is a byproduct of the Spirit of God, the fruit of the Spirit. And we know those nine qualities. It's an expression of His sovereign work in our life. And so most of us can quote Galatians 5, but quite often we fail to go on to Galatians chapter 6, where it spells out our responsibility to cooperate with the Spirit of God. So to the Spirit that you might not carry out the desires of that lower, sinful, fallen nature. And so some Christians don't take the time to feed on the Word of God, to faithfully be with God's people on the Lord's Day. (laughs) I was in church last Sunday. By the way, I went to Community Bible Church. And uh, it was a Presbyterian church, of all things, I found out. Louis Palau happened to be there, and I had the chance to meet with him and speak with him. And I think he may come to our church, God willing. But in either case, I spoke to one man. He said, you're on vacation? I said, yeah. He said, you come to church when you're on vacation? I said, don't all Christians? You know, and he was almost surprised. And I I didn't quite understand that. Some of us 
are not sowing to the Spirit. We're not feeding on the Word of God. We're not in this book learning what it says. And so we're not reaping a harvest of holiness. But we also saw that there's a second dimension to this harvest, and it's a harvest of souls. Jesus himself said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. God has a harvest and it is plentiful, but it is still true what he said. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So again, on the one hand, God the Holy Spirit is sovereign as he brings people to Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, he uses you and I to play a role in that part. The hardworking farmer can expect good results. A good farmer puts his hand to the plow and he does not look back. And so these are three qualities of a dedicated Christian. And with that said, notice what he says in verse 7. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. That is, I want you to meditate on the significance of these three things that I've just told you, and God will give you understanding in everything. Now, some translations do not bring it out as clearly as the New American Standard does from the original. But understand, in the original, this is a plain, clear promise from God. It's not a statement of desire, though it may have been expressed that way in Old English. It's a promise and a very important promise. It's a biblical principle that you and I need to get a hold of if we're going to study the Bible rightfully. Two processes are necessary. One is human and the other is divine. First, Timothy, think it over. Mull on it. Consider what I say. And if you will do that, God will give you understanding. It's not a wish. May the Lord. It's a promise. The Lord will give you understanding. If you're willing to do the thinking, God is willing to give the understanding. Now, I hope you're listening this morning because this is very important as you study the Word of God from day to day and week to week. Two critical principles here are unfolded. First, if we're to receive understanding, we must consider what the apostle, or for that matter, any writer of the New Testament has penned by the Spirit of God. Consider what I say. Now, by the way, this is a good example of Paul and others like him who are conscious of the fact that as they wrote the Bible, that they were writing Scripture. I wouldn't send you a letter and say, meditate on it, mull on it, go to bed thinking on it day and night, and God will give you understanding. But Paul could say that because Paul recognized that what he was penning by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was the very words of God. So first, if we're to receive understanding, we must consider what the apostle is saying. But secondly, we must consider. Consider what I say. One of the reasons... So many Christians today have trouble in understanding the Bible is because God doesn't give them understanding. And the reason God doesn't give them understanding is because they're unwilling to do the considering. Oh, they'll very piously say sometimes, oh, I'm praying, even trusting the Holy Spirit to illumine the Word of God to me. But they're not obeying the command, consider what I say. And there are many lazy Christians today who do not get down to serious Bible study quite often because they are so enamored with, enamored with the carnal entertainments of this world. But this verse tells us 
how we receive understanding. Some of you here this morning, I see you on the edge of your seat. You got your bulletin, a pen out, you're taking notes. You're eager to learn what the Word of God says. Other of you, you're folded back, laying there like you could go to sleep. But if this were a seminar on how to make a million dollars, if this were a seminar on how to get free scholarships to your kids to college, or how to prosper in your business, you'd have a pen out and you'd be writing down everything. I want to tell you, this is the Word of God. And you need to consider it. Part of your worship involves your mind. Remember the greatest of all commandments that our God gave. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. On occasion, you and I will meet these super spiritual saints who tell you that God just speaks to them by the Holy Spirit. I will never forget a pastor I met in Dallas when we got into a discussion on sermon preparation. And he told me the way he did it is he'd listen to praise and worship music on the way to church and try to work himself up into a certain emotional state. And, and then whatever came out, he preached on Sunday morning. Now, that may sound spiritual and pious, but I want to tell you, friend, it's wrong. God calls a pastor. He calls every Christian to meditate, to ponder, to study, to grapple with your mind the truth of Scripture. Now, understand there are Christians who go to the other end of the spectrum who uh, wrestle with the Scripture. They read all the commentaries. They use the language tools. They consult the uh, concordances and other things. But they do it all by themselves, and they're not affirming the truth that it is God who gives the understanding. Listen, we need to approach the Scriptures, but prayerfully, dependently, with our minds, studying the Word of God, and then God promises to give understanding. Now, when we come to verses 8 to 13, please don't miss the flow of thought here. Having illustrated with these three metaphors, in which Timothy is asked to consider and ponder upon, Paul wants to expand upon that. Again, it's the same theme that really nothing worthwhile in this life ever comes easy. A modern colloquialism, no pain, no gain. That through suffering comes blessing. But to expand upon that, he moves past these three secular illustrations of a farmer, a soldier, and an athlete into the realm of personal experience. In verse 8, he looks at the experience of Jesus Christ. In verses 9 and 10, he looks at his own experience. And then in verses 11 to 13, he looks at the experience of all true Christians. So consider first the experience of Christ in suffering. Let's again read verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Now, the first three words are a command, remember Jesus Christ. And it seems rather extraordinary because why wouldn't we remember him? I mean, how could we forget him? Well, I don't think this is simply a general command to remember him, but to remember him in a certain way. Of course, he is to remember Christ according to my gospel because Jesus Christ is the heart and the soul of the gospel. And since Timothy has been called to keep the deposit, to guard the treasure, to pass it on to faithful men who can teach others also, then he is certainly to preach the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is to remember Christ certainly in that way. But think about these two phrases found in this verse. They're critical to understanding and unfolding what he is trying to say. Risen from the dead, descendant of David. 
And in these two expressions, we really find a full account of the gospel, of the birth, death, resurrection, ascension, and reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in these two expressions, in reference to Christ's sufferings, we learn two things. First, Christ's suffering teaches us about his unique person. That's the first thing we learn, that through Christ's suffering, we learn something about his unique person. Again, let's think it through. He is called here descendant of David, and he's referred to as the one who has risen from the dead. Descendant of David speaks to his humanity. You know 2 Samuel 7, I hope, very critical chapter in the Bible. It's a chapter of Scripture that speaks of Messiah and his coming. The Bible describes him in the Old Testament as a divine human person. When these JWs come to your door, they do not believe it's possible for God to become a man. You take them to Isaiah 9 or 2 Samuel 7. For a child shall be born to us, and this child's name shall be called Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. A child is coming, a baby is coming, and the baby's name is Eternal God. Descendant of David, that speaks of his humanity. Messiah would come directly from the line of David. Risen from the dead, that speaks of his deity. For the resurrection of Christ was, in essence, God's affirmation of his deity. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we learn something in these two phrases about his unique person. But secondly, Christ's suffering also teaches us something about his unique saving work. The phrase here, risen from the dead, of course, indicates and implies that he died for our sin. And as Romans 4 affirms, the fact that he rose from the dead proves that his sacrifice was acceptable. Paul said, he, Christ, who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. The value of Christ's death to pay for our sin is seen in the resurrection. A very popular tract was put out by the Navigators in the 1980s, and it left out the resurrection. It wasn't in there. They printed I don't know how many tens of thousands of copies, and the resurrection wasn't there. It's part of the gospel. The resurrection is God's affirmation that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. Now, it's a wonderful organization, but I want you to see that the resurrection affirms his deity, descended from David. David's throne, 2 Samuel 7, would be seated, the Bible promises, with one whose kingdom would never end. Even at his birth, the angel Gabriel said, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And so in these two phrases, he is pictured as both Savior and King. Now, that's what we learn from the sufferings of Jesus Christ. But in this context, he is asked to remember him for a specific reason. Don't get lost in the theology and miss the point that Paul is trying to make. These facts that Christ is the descendant of David, the one risen from the dead, constitute the gospel which he is to preach, but they also serve as an example of how we are to suffer. Paul wants to teach Timothy and us by application that Christ's own experience of death that brought glory, that brought rain, that blessing comes through the pathway of suffering. He died, 
but he was raised from the dead. He was born in humanity as he left the glories of heaven and humbled himself by becoming a man. But he's reigning on David's throne. The one who died was raised from the dead. The one who humbled himself is now reigning in heaven. And so we learn from the example of Christ and his suffering that glory comes through suffering, that life comes through death, that blessing comes through pain. But Paul doesn't stop there. He moves now past the example of Christ to his own example, the experience of the Apostle Paul in suffering. Again, verse 8 says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. Now, Paul is suffering for the gospel. He's in a Roman dungeon. He's awaiting his execution. And like his Savior, he's an innocent man. He's not a criminal, but he's being treated like one. He's not there because, like the televangelist of years ago, selling timeshares for apartments that didn't exist. He's not bilking widows for every last cent they have. He doesn't have some 1-800 number you can call to scam God's people. No, he is there not because he's peddling the gospel, but because he's preaching the gospel. And we learn two things from Paul's suffering as a preacher of the gospel. First, Paul's suffering provided an opportunity to share salvation. It provided an opportunity to share Jesus Christ. Paul paints a contrast here. He was chained, but God's word was not. Understand, Paul never used his imprisonments as an opportunity to back off, to sit back and relax he always used them as opportunities only to go forward. What a man. Remember what he said to the church at Philippi? Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment and the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. In Philippi, Paul was chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day and the shifts would change every six hours. That meant that Paul could share Christ with at least four men every day. Now imagine yourself chained to the Apostle Paul, a man who prays without ceasing, a man who literally, as Colossians says, gossips the gospel. That which is on his heart shows up all the time on his lips. He's constantly sharing the gospel with the Praetorian Guard. They're the Greenbolt Rays. They're the Marines. This is the elite Roman Guard who served as leaders throughout the whole Roman army. And Paul is winning these men to Christ. In addition, he told the Philippians, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. The Christians on the outside reason. If Paul can do that in jail, what, I, what should I ought be able to do? Me, a free man, I ought to be able to preach the gospel. And of course, Paul's contact, just like Jesus said in the Acts, his testimony is found there three times, but Jesus said you're going to preach to Jews, you're going to preach to Gentiles, and you're going to preach to kings, to those who are in authority. And as you read the Acts, that's precisely what he does. He preached to Governor Felix. He preached to Procurator Festus. He preached to King Agrippa. And now he's preaching to Nero. Remember what took place in Acts? Paul said, I appeal to Caesar. And he said to Caesar, you will go. And so Paul had his right as a Roman citizen 
to stand before the most powerful man in the world who, like others, would test him to see if this is some sect, some cult, not consistent with the law of Rome. And Paul preached the gospel to these people. They were forced to hear, in essence, the good news of Jesus Christ. But they were free to do what they would with it. Now, later on in this epistle, in 2 Timothy 4, though he doesn't spell it out in terms of what he said to Nero, he references it. Remember 2 Timothy 4, 16. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Paul, the first time he stood before Nero, Nero, all the Christians ran. And so he says, I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Not to mention the fact that he wrote this letter while he was in prison, along with a number of other letters and other prison kinds of experiences. So Paul's suffering, that is an opportunity to share. Secondly, Paul's suffering provided the means to secure salvation. Now, this is closely related, but follow along with me. His suffering provided the means to secure salvation. Now, that may sound rather heretical at first, but follow what the Apostle Paul says. Paul is saying that there is a relationship between my suffering and the gospel. But what he is making here is not simply a comparison. I'm chained and the word of God is not. He takes it beyond that. It's not simply that he was given an opportunity to share Christ, but his sufferings became the means to secure people's salvation. Look at verse 10. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Paul is saying the elect, the chosen, will hear the gospel because I am willing to suffer. Now, Paul is not saying that his suffering somehow was vicarious, that somehow propitiated a holy God, because only the blood of Jesus Christ can pay for sin. But Paul is reminding these dear saints that because he was willing to suffer, because he was willing to suffer hardship, men and women and boys and girls were finding Jesus Christ. I have a friend who serves in Tibet, I led him to Christ when he was at Duke University, and he's ministered there for the last 14 and a half years under deplorable conditions. Lives in what I would call a block house at 9,000 feet to be able to relate to the Tibetan people. But he's willing to sacrifice and to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. There are missionaries all over the world who died to self daily who give up so many of the pleasures that we enjoy. And if you want to be effective for Jesus Christ, you too must suffer. This past week, I was speaking to a couple who had come to faith in the last couple of years. They told me that every weekend they used to gather all their friends and go out and get drunk. But when they met Jesus Christ, they got on the wagon, so to speak, that their testimony might be above reproach, and the phone stopped ringing. But there were a few who still called because they were interested in the changes that was taking place in this family for good. And they could see the effect it had on the children. Listen, if you want to be effective for Jesus Christ, there is a cost. 
It might be that the phone stops ringing. Young people, it might be that you're not invited to the parties anymore. That people ignore you, that they ostracize you, that they say all sorts of evil against you falsely on account of our Lord. But it's the pathway to preaching the gospel. And so here's Paul. By his own example, he is teaching us the same principle that blessing comes through suffering. But he's not finished yet. There's the experience of Christ, there's the experience of Paul, but there's also the experience of all Christian believers in suffering. Look at verse 11. Notice how it begins. It is a trustworthy statement. Now Paul is about to quote from a first century hymn that is so theologically accurate that God puts the stamp of approval upon it and includes it in the canon of Scripture. There's so much trash Christian music out there, I'm just blown away by it. And Christians who buy it up by the handful, music that quite often is theologically inaccurate. But there's some good Christian music out there too, sound theologically. But as far as I know, this is the only hymn that ever made it into the canon of Scripture. God obviously liked this hymn. And what I want you to see is how these two epigrams, these two general truths, speak to Christian life and experience. The first pair applies to a believer. The second pair applies to an unbeliever. The first pair applies to those who are true and who are willing to endure. The second pair applies to those who are false and who are faithless. And I learned two things from this experience of Christian suffering. First, if we are faithful we will be blessed. If we're faithful, we will be blessed. Now look, if you will, at the first pair of parallel statements. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Paul is reminding us that the Christian life is a life of dying and a life of enduring. It is only as we share in Christ's death that we will share his life. If we die with him, we will live with him. Do you want to live with Christ? Then you must die with Christ. Do you want to reign with Christ? Then you must endure for Christ. And a true Christian, one who is genuinely born again, will not be like those people that Christ described in the parable of the sower. Remember that one bunch in Luke 8, 13, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear... Receive the word with joy. You know, sometimes you preach the gospel and some unsaved people get excited about it. There's a smile on their face. Truth brings joy to their hearts. But Jesus said these have no firm root. They believe for a while in time of temptation, fall away. They believe, but their belief is only intellectual. It's never touched the heart. It's the same kind of faith that Jesus describes of demons. They believe, yet they tremble. It's the same kind of so-called faith that Peter describes of Simon the sorcerer, where it says he believed, but then in the next statement he says, you are in the gall of iniquity and the bitterness of sin. Intellectual only, having never touched the heart. When pressure comes to bear on you for your Christianity, are you likely to stand up for the cause of Christ? Or are you more likely to run away? Your answer is a key indicator of whether you are truly born again. Paul said he was not ashamed of the gospel because he knew it was the power unto salvation. Today's message, The Cost of Suffering in Christ, is part of our study of the book of 2 Timothy. 
and is available on CD or DVD by calling our order line at 877-787-7478. Just ask for program 2TM4, The Cost of Suffering in Christ. You can also listen to it online at searchthescriptures.org or by using the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets. Tomorrow, Dr. Berge will conclude his look at the persecution Christians can often expect when they name the name of Christ. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. <music>